For those of you who haven't met me, my name is Abby, and I have just started here at Wake Park Church as the Family Ministries Pastor. Now, some of you may have been at churches that had a Family Ministries Pastor, and others may be able to take a pretty good stab at what it is a role like mine might entail. Um, but rather than leave those things to the imagination, Pastor Corey gave me some time this morning to share with you our vision for Family Ministries, what that means, and why I'm even here. Because to get a few misconceptions out of the way, being Family Ministries pastor does not make me the babysitter-in-chief. And Family Ministry is also not just for the sleep-deprived parents of littles or the stressed-out parents of teenagers. It's a lot bigger and broader than that. And so we're going to talk about it more this morning. Many of you may remember from stories that I have shared that both my family and my husband Andrew's family served as missionaries in Burkina Faso, West Africa. And anyone who has spent much time on the continent can tell you that living in Africa brings a new adventure every day. Some of them are unexpected challenges, like when products like ketchup or butter or pizza cheese would disappear from the shelves for months at a time with no explanation. There were also these groan-inducing nuisances, like on a hot day, you got into the evening, you were trying to fall asleep, your fan was on, and all of a sudden the power cuts, and you knew that you were in for a few sleepless hours of tossing and turning. There were also moments of side-splitting laughter, like when a new person was on their first village trip and they dipped the ladle into the sauce pot, and rather than ending up with a chicken leg or a wing, they actually fished out the head of the chicken, usually with like the feet sticking out of the beak, making it a double treat. That was always fun to watch the look on their faces. But one endeavor that was sure about to bring, sure to bring about all of those three things was a road trip. So while we had plenty of adventures on those road trips, there is one trip in particular that has become infamous in my family. And if my dad or my brother are watching, they know right now exactly which trip I'm talking about. On this particular trip, we had a team of high schoolers from the Black Forest Academy with us for a week over their spring break, and we were planning to take a load of benches up to this church in a village that was way up north by the Mali border. It was going to be like a 12-hour drive, but we had prepared ourselves, we had prepared the team that it was going to be a long trip. We loaded up the high schoolers in the 15-passenger van, and then my dad, my brother, a friend of ours, our cook, and myself, we got in the Land Cruiser pulling the trailer with all of the bench supplies. Our first mishap was a pretty common one. The U-bolt holding the axle up to the trailer broke. Now, for those of you who are not mechanically minded, suffice to say that we were going nowhere fast because the axle, which is connected to the wheel, was no longer connected to the trailer. My dad ratchet strapped it up and we limped our way into the next village at a painful 10 mile per hour pace. But Thankfully, we found a mechanic, we just had a long lunch under a tree, and a few hours later, we were able to get back on the road. We eventually made it to our destination, albeit much later than we had planned, but all in all, it seemed like a pretty run-of-the-mill experience when it comes to the standards of African travel. But that was just day one. The next morning, we assembled the benches and headed out for home about mid-morning. Now, this is an April day, which may not mean a lot to a room full of Minnesotans, but April in Burkina is brutal. Like most days you feel like you're right around the corner from the surface of the sun. We're talking like 110 degrees in the shade, kind of hot. So as we set out for home, keep in mind that it was not only April, and, but we were approaching the middle of the day and we were in the northern part of the country, which is right on the border of the Sahara Desert, where there's a very little shade to be found. And it was ridiculously hot. 
So we loaded up same as before. All of the high schoolers went ahead in the 15-passenger van, and the rest of us were in the Land Cruiser with the trailer. We didn't have bench supplies this time, but we did have three goats that we had been gifted that were now along for the ride. So I was sitting behind the driver's seat in the Land Cruiser reading a book when about an hour into the trip, I felt my side of the car just kind of slump down to the ground. And as I looked out the window, I could see the left rear passenger tire and brake drum just rolling off into the brush on the side of the road. So here we were in the middle of nowhere on the edge of the Sahara Desert, fast approaching noon in the hottest month of the year with five humans, three goats, and two and a half gallons of drinkable water. Objectively not a great position to be in. But after walking about a kilometer back and locating some of the lug nuts that we had lost, and then creatively using multiple tire jacks to get the vehicle up high enough so that my dad could get the brake drum and tire back on, and we held one of my wrap skirts over him so he could have a bit of shade while he worked, and miraculously, we were able to cobble the Land Cruiser together well enough to get into the next village with yet another mechanic. This repair, however, was going to be a little more extensive, so we left two of our leaders behind and the rest of us just squished into the 15-passenger van, which was pretty close quarters, but we were so exhausted and we just wanted to get home. Not long after we left the village, though, we found ourselves with a flat tire. Now, this is a pretty common occurrence on the dirt roads of Africa, but we realized that we had accidentally left the tire iron in the Land Cruiser back in the village that we had just left. So we had no choice but to wait for a cotton truck to drive by, flag them down, and borrow their tools to get a new tire on our vehicle. And at this point, we just had to laugh, because what else could possibly go wrong? And it was at that point that my dad uttered what, have been, what has become known as famous last words. All that's left is for us to hit a cow. And I kid you not, it was not that much further down the road that we did, in fact, hit a cow. Now, in fairness, we didn't hit it that hard, and it was kind of the cow's fault, which if, you, if any of you have traveled in Africa before, you know that that's possible for it to kind of be the animal's fault. But it was the cherry on top of this unforgettable trip. Sometimes our last words become the infamous punchlines to stories like the one I just told. But sometimes when we know that we've reached the end of a season or a moment or maybe even a life, our words are filled with meaning and purpose. Sometimes our last words are things we really want people to remember, like the I love you's that we say at the airport, not knowing how long it'll be until we see each other again. It's also things like on Sunday mornings when the worship service ends and Pastor Corey says, the worship service is over, let's go be the church. Other times, our, words, our last words are bits of wisdom, things we want to be sure to pass on. Things like my youth pastor telling me when I was heading back to the States after high school to be sure to find a good church that I could call home. Or there are also things like my mom frantically sharing as many geography facts as she could muster when we were in the car on the way to the school geography bee when I was in fourth grade. I don't know if you're going to need to know this, she said, but when I was in college, I had a professor, and he spent time in Belize. It's this little tiny country in Central America. Belize did, in fact, come up in the school geography bee that day, and I went to the next round because of that little bit of wisdom she had passed on. The book of Deuteronomy is a book of the last words of Moses. In fact, some have called it his last will and testament because the book ends with an account of his eulogy and his burial. 
If you're familiar with the story of the Israelites, like Joshua shared with us this morning, you'll know that they were slaves in Egypt, but God delivered them out of slavery and brought them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, out of Egypt, and to the edge of the promised land. And then when their fear caused them to doubt that God would give them victory over the giants in the land that he had promised them, God had Moses lead the Israelites back through the wilderness for 40 years before bringing them back to the edge of the promised land, which is where the book of Deuteronomy is set. Because of the disobedience in his own life, Moses was not going to be permitted to enter the promised land with the people. But before they went on without him, before he was buried on Mount Nebo, before he died on Mount Nebo and was buried by God himself, Moses reminded them of their story. He reminded them of who God is, who God had created them to be, and the things to which he had called them. You'll even hear some of that, that language in the verses that we're about to hear. There's this sense of urgency behind his words, this, listen, look up here, this is important, don't miss this. Let's begin in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now the Jews view these two verses as some of the choicest in all of Scripture. They're as well known to the Jews as the Lord's prayer is to many Christians because some Jews did and still do pray those verses twice every day. In fact, they're probably verses that Jesus was familiar with, having heard them in the synagogues often. These two verses are called the Shema, a name that comes from that word at the very beginning of verse 4, the word we translate as hear or listen. And its meaning goes deeper than just sound waves that come in through your ears. It gets at the idea of hearing intelligently with the implication of obedience. Hear listen obediently, attention, listen closely. Those are all words and phrases that different translations of the Bible use to communicate what this word is trying to convey, that meaning behind the word Shema. From the very first word, we're being asked to lean in, to listen with the intent and goal of obedience. These commandments, this overarching story of what God is communicating, what he's reminding his people of through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. What's being said here is that God's commandments isn't something that we should have, they aren't something that we should just have memorized or even at the tip of our, our tongue. It should be something that's very deeply embedded in the core of our being. If you've ever had a roommate or been married, you know what it's like to see someone's embedded behavior. Maybe it was when you noticed your roommate's habit of leaving every door unlocked because they grew up in a rural area where no one locked things up at night, much less in the middle of the day. Or maybe it was when your spouse saw you meal prep a crock pot worth of food and they looked at you with such a strange look, like why would you want to eat the same thing every day all week long? Or maybe it was something like, for you like it was for Andrew and I the very first time that we went to a fast food restaurant together shortly after we had gotten married. We sat down, I took my sandwich, I gave him his, and I dumped the french fries out on the tray and he looked at me with absolute horror. What did you just do? Because you see in my family, oftentimes when we would go out to eat at a fast food restaurant, we would just dump all the fries out on a tray and everyone would eat what they wanted. But that embedded behavior, that way of thinking was something that was exposed that day as my husband helped me learn that not everyone shares their french fries. God wants, <laughs> God wants his commandments.
commandments to be so embedded in us, so embedded in who we are that we hardly think to operate otherwise. So let's move on to verse 7. So these commandments that we're being instructed to have as part of our being, impress them, or as the Hebrew meaning gets at, point to them intensively, teach them diligently, pierce them, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit down at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. These commandments are important for us personally, to be sure, but they shouldn't end with us. What God is saying through Moses is that these commandments are so important that we need to teach them to our children. God's concern of passing on the baton of faith to the next generation is woven throughout scripture. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Psalm 78, two through seven, I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from our descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Psalm 102:18. let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. In Exodus 12, when giving instructions around the Passover in verses 26 and 27, when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the house of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. In Joshua 4, when God parted the waters of the Jordan River, as we talked about a few weeks ago, and the Israelites made a memorial of stones. In verses 6 and 7, we read, In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, when the Israelites, or the people of Judah, were about to be attacked by the Moabites and Ammonites, and they didn't know what to do, King Jehoshaphat gathered the people together to fast and seek the Lord. And in verse 13, it says, all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. In the book of Acts, we see the church growing, not just person by person, but household by household. In 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes of the significance of the passing on of faith from Timothy's grandmother, Lois, to his mother, Eunice, and then on to Timothy, who is being mentored by Paul. And the list could go on and on. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, make the story of who God is, who God has created you to be, and the things to which he has called you part of your everyday conversations. Many of you were here or saw a few weeks ago when I did a children's message with my husband, Andrew, and we talked about his Vikings fandom. In fact, when I first told him that I was scheduled to preach on the 13th, he reminded me that there is a Vikings game today and that I needed to be sure we got out on time. So I'm watching the time, hun. We'll get out in plenty of time for you all to get home and catch the Vikings game. Anyways, Andrew became a Vikings fan because his dad passed it on to him. 
They watched Vikings games together. Larry spray-painted lines on their yard so that they could play football together. They talked about Vikings players, both past and present. And even now, they talk about the Vikings when they're out fishing. They listen to sports radio, and then they call each other on the phone to talk about what they learned. They text each other during Vikings games, and they hope and dream together about what that next season will look like and how the Vikings are going to get that ever-elusive Super Bowl win. This is what these verses are getting at. God is saying through Moses that talking about him should be part of everything that we do. It's hearing a kid talk about a hard day at school where they saw someone bullied on the playground and asking, what do you think God thinks about that? Does his word have anything to tell us about what to do? It's talking about a seemingly impossible situation that you as a family might be facing and saying, you know, I remember this really big problem that I was facing once. And this is how God helped me. This is how God came through. It's high-fiving a kid after a stellar performance in the spring play or on the soccer field and telling them, I'm so proud of you. And I know that God is too. Verse 8 continues, tie them, these commandments, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Now, some Jews have taken this literally and created these little boxes called phylacteries that they, um, they take slips of paper and write out verses like the Shema on them and put them inside the little boxes and then actually tie them to their foreheads and to their arms while they're praying. That's a tradition that some people have chosen, but I think that the symbolic interpretation is probably getting closer at what these verses mean. So your hands represent the things that you do. And just below your forehead is where you have your eyes. It's where you get your vision. In other words, in the things that you do and in the ways you choose to see the world, do it with God in mind, remembering who he is and who he's created us to be and the things to which he has called us. I think we can draw similar conclusions from from verse 9. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Make God an integral part of your home. Allow him to be the gatekeeper determining what you will allow or what you will reject in your home. For example, for Andrew and me, we've decided that we want our house to be a place of welcome and refuge. And so we've oriented our everyday functioning, the things that we do within our home, around that. So instead of sprawling our stuff around the house and taking up every square inch of space for ourselves, we've chosen to set aside certain rooms that are guest spaces, that are always ready and open for someone to stay with us if they need it. We see our house as a gift that God has given us to steward, and so we try to hold our space with an open hand, rejecting the selfish desire to keep our house to ourselves and allowing God's welcome and hospitality to flow through us. And even though we're far from perfect in our practice of hospitality, our choice to align our vision for and our actions in our home has meant that whenever we have people stay with us for days or weeks or even months at a time, the resounding response that we get is that when people are in our home, they feel at peace. And whether they know it or not, we know that it's not any sort of peace that we've created, but it's the peace of God that they are encountering. Tie them, these commandments, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the dorm frames of your houses and on your gates. These verses in Deuteronomy 6 give us the foundation of our family ministries here at Wake Park Church. Our family ministries exist to equip the family to grow in relationship with Jesus, his church, and the world. Passing on the faith to the next generation is the model that God has given us through Moses in Deuteronomy 6. And as we've seen, it's a theme that's woven throughout Scripture. And because this passing on of the faith is so important, you've brought me on here at Way Park Church. 
We read in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, that these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So that's what I'm here to do. I love teaching kids. I love hanging out with kids. But that's not primarily what we're here to do. I'm here to equip the family to do this work. But let's talk a little bit more about that word family, because I think for many of us, when we think of the word family, a biological nuclear family is what comes to mind. A dad, a mom, and one or two or more kids. And to be sure, we do care about the nuclear family, and we see that kind of discipleship happening throughout Scripture. Traditional models, like that of Abraham passing on the faith to Isaac and then passing on the faith to Jacob. But generational discipleship in scripture is not strictly limited to a biological parent to biological child relationship. We see generational discipleship happening through extended family relationships, like that of Mordecai and Esther. We see generational discipleship happening through one parent rather than two, like with Eunice and Timothy. We see generational discipleship happening through spiritual relationships, like that of Paul and Titus. So let me be clear, the biological nuclear family is important, but God also expands our understanding of what family is through Jesus, because as his adopted children, we become part of his family, the body of Christ, and in this family, God creates a place for the lonely and invites in those who have lost part or all of their biological nuclear family. When we say that our Wait Park Church Family Ministries exist to equip the family, We mean it in this dual sense. We're here to equip parents and caregivers, like we did yesterday with our Connected Families Workshop. But we're also here to equip the family of God to engage in shaping the next generation and um, passing on the faith. Let's look back at verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6 and notice the context. Hear, O Israel. This is a command that was given to the community of Israel. Yes, there's a role for parents to play, but this verse doesn't start out with, hear, O parents. It starts out with, hear, O Israel. It commands Israel as a community to love God with all their heart, soul, and strength. It commands Israel as a community to make God's commandments part of the very fiber of their beings. It commands Israel as a community to impress who God is, who he's created us to be, and the things to which he has called us on our children, to talk about him in the everyday moments and to make him part of how we think and act as a community. And as we do that, as we pass on this role, it's also important that we remember that it's more than just a bunch of rules and individual stories that we are passing on. It's about something much, much bigger. Let's look again in Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. So when the kids of Wait Park Church ask us, what are all these rules about? 
What does the story of David and Goliath matter? Why does it matter? What's the point? Any of these other stories, why are they important? It's our job to show them that it's about so much more. It's about a bigger story that we get to be part of. We are part of God's people, a people that he has been passionately pursuing for centuries, ones that he loves more deeply than we can imagine. And in the love that we show him in response, we freely and willingly obey what he commands. It's our job to show them that life with Jesus is better. Not just being nice rule followers, but actually living in relationship with him. And that's our why. That's our driving force behind family ministries here at Wake Park Church. Because we believe that life with Jesus is better, we equip the family to grow in relationship with Jesus, his church, and the world. And because we believe we're called to this as a community, we're going to accomplish it through intergenerational ministry. In the season to come, we're going to be intentionally creating opportunities for you to do this together. Throughout the upcoming focus season, we're going to give you ideas of how you can engage in soul training with your kids at home and in small groups and in other places. As we navigate the uncertainties of the fall and what reopening Kids Park looks like, we're going to be providing that Kids Park online experience that you saw demoed last week to give you tools to engage in this together with your kids. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, you can look at last week's live stream. It's toward the very beginning. And those are just a few of the many things that we're looking toward. We have big dreams for what we want to see God do in our kids. We have big dreams for where he might be leading us as a church. But as we begin this journey, I want to say to the parents, we need you. From the big breakthrough moments when you feel like you are finally getting through to your kids, to the mundane everyday moments that feel utterly insignificant, every single act of faithfulness makes a difference in the lives of your kids. To the grandparents, we need you. Your wisdom and grace are irreplaceable in the lives of your grandchildren. Continue to cheer them on because your encouragement and your presence in their lives will reverberate throughout their memories for a lifetime. To the aunts and uncles, we need you. You are part of your nieces and nephews finding their place of belonging in your family and in the family of God. Don't underestimate the hours that you spend hugging and playing and praying for them. To the single men and women, we need you. Your mentorship and listening ear are sometimes what a kid needs most when mom and dad just don't seem to be getting through. And sometimes you're the one that they need. To the grown-ups in small groups, we need you. When you get to know the kids of the adults in your small group, when you greet them with a smile at church and ask how their week has been going, when you show up at their art show or their archery competition, when you walk alongside them as you do their parents, you are creating kingdom community that will make faith stick for a lifetime. To the widows and widowers, we need you. Though life looks different now than it once did, this season holds opportunities beyond what you can imagine to fill the gaps in the lives of our families. And your prayers, especially the ones that are offered in response to asking a kid how you can pray for them, they make an eternal impact. To the ones who have lost children, we need you. Because you know deep in your bones how precious every moment is. You know that our time is short. 
and the painful scars that you bear don't have to be in vain. They can become a place from which profound spirit-infused ministry can flow. To the empty nesters, we need you. The wisdom that you've gleaned from your years of raising children and launching them into adulthood, that's the anchor of hope and glimpse of perspectives that families in the trenches need. To the ones who have waited for children and not yet had them, we need you. Nothing can fill the ache in your heart, but you can allow God's healing balm to be poured out on your heart as you take part in pouring out his love onto the little ones at Wait Park Church as spiritual fathers and mothers. To the ones who love Jesus, but whose families do not yet, we need you. Because your persistence in prayer for your loved ones spurs us on in prayer for our loved ones and teaches us how to tether our hope to Jesus when the faith of our loved ones wavers. To the ones who serve all throughout Wait Park Church, we need you. Because when you think outside of the box and you invite kids to engage in ministry alongside you and experience the joy of serving, you are helping them see how they are a part of God's family and God's church here and now. To the ones who serve in the nursery, we need you. When you hold those babies and love on them for the moments that you have them, you, each Sunday morning, you are laying a foundational understanding in their hearts that church is a safe place where they are loved and that the God that we worship loves them too and sees them as precious. To the ones who serve in Kids Park and Youth Group, we need you. You are a crucial part of introducing our kids to the gospel, helping them encounter him and training them up in the faith. Your influence will have ripple effects through decades. To the teenagers, we need you. You're, you see the world with fresh eyes and you ask deep questions that we all need to wrestle with. And when you persist in leaning into the hard conversations, you lead all of us deeper into the heart of God. To the kids, we need you. Because you aren't the church of tomorrow, you are the church of right now. You have things to teach us and gifts to give us that no one else in this church can. You matter. This is family ministry. This is what we're asking God to do in our midst. And this is what I'm inviting you into, whatever phase of life you may be in. Hear, O Israel, here, O Wait Park Church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. We're going to close today with a blessing that's going to be sung over you. And I want to invite everyone that's here to receive that blessing. Whatever receiving looks like for you, maybe that's um, closing your eyes to remove all distractions. Maybe it's focusing your eyes on the cross behind me. Maybe your response is singing along with the words if you know them. Maybe your response is a physical posture of holding your hands open before you or having a hand on your heart. Whatever response and receiving looks like for you, I invite you to lean into that as you receive this blessing today on you 
and on your families, on our church family as a whole, and on the generations to come.